Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. At only five foot four, Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas was a prominent political figure in one of the country's toughest times. In this episode, we find out about the man they called the Little Giants with special guest Reg Ingram, coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Well, Travis, on to another episode. It's hard to believe already that uh, we're, we're getting already close to the end of season three. <laughs> it's flying by, that's for sure. Yeah, it's uh, where I think this is episode eight. Uh, so uh, only a few more left in this season. We'll call it a wraps. But, you know, it's been pretty cool because we've had a, quite a few really neat guests this season. And uh, not an exception coming up a few minutes here. We'll be talking with somebody else about another subject. But, of course, you know, before we get all that, we got to get uh, the uh, the laundry done, get the trash taken out and the, the bills paid. Got and chores. Travis, let's, we got let's, chores. Let's do the chores. What chores do we have we have to take care of? couple new uh, residents the land of the wild things our patreon side we are more than happy to welcome adam deusterhouse adam and i go way back great guy good friend uh, eight dollar kelly salad bar level he joined us at thank you adam great to have you on board and brennan hills i don't know brennan per se but he was brave enough to jump into the patreon pool at five dollar medium jeff special level so we thank you both for becoming a patreon uh, member, anyone else can do the same and get access to a crap ton of bonus episodes. And now, Chris, the latest benefit being our Slack channel, where I was just adding research things this morning for a future episode of interesting stuff. Awesome. So it's so you can kind of see behind the scenes of what's going on. I backfilled some old episode research, too, just to kind of mix it up. So check it out. That's awesome with our new Patreon members. But uh, Travis, I'll be honest with you. I, every time that we talk about new Patreon members, they're former longtime friends of yours. Man, I, I'm starting to think that you're my only friend. <laughs> I don't want to say anything, Chris. Um, you know, Chris, it's not you. It's 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 me. I'm I'm just looking for another, something more in a podcast co-host. <laughs> I kid. I kid. Yeah, yeah, no. No, no, we appreciate all of our members. I've said before, we're not doing that for the money. We're doing it because we we enjoy doing the podcast and enjoy doing I'm just doing about I'm stuff. doing it for the money. You do it for yeah, the money. Just, it's all about the Benjamins. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about the it's all about the payout at no, the end. We We're gonna... kid. We thank you so much for helping us keep the lights on and it really helps it makes us feel good that people are enjoying what we're doing and we're yeah. gonna keep uh a little more gas in the tank to get us further into season. God knows how long we'll go, Chris. Yeah, well, there's plenty of subject to talk about. And uh, speaking of subjects to talk about, Travis, we got to dive right in to the question of the day. Are it. you ready Let's for this? Do it. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. The question is this. The man-made caves that are located near Gardner Expressway have been continuously mined for many, many years. The question is this, though, Travis. How far do the caves go back? back mm. give you some choices mm. all right i have no idea do they do they go to 8th street oh. do they go to 12th street 18th or 24th oh wow chris that's gonna be a shot in the dark i'll think about it and we'll we'll circle back and see what the right answer is because it probably yeah. won't be my answer 
<laughs> Again, the questions is uh, the man-made caves located near Gardner Expressway have been around for a long time. How far back do they go? Is it 8th Street, 12th, 18th, or 24th? We'll have that question for you coming up at the end of this episode. But Travis, it's uh, time to dig in and talk about a person that we've uh, talked about quite a lot, actually. And we need to find out more information because he's a fascinating guy. We're going to be talking in our People episode about none other than Stephen Douglas. We're going to do that with Reg Akram coming up next here on Wild Blues. what you missed on the latest after hours episode of wild quincy you were going to take ray out of the equation is there another possible avenue that you would want to go down as a full resolve to find out what happened to the fanship family that was my whole problem i couldn't come up with another one i literally could not find anything else that made any kind of sense the biggest problem i had was how could somebody go from this horrible murder to then sort of living a more or less reasonable life afterwards? Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. Back here on Wild Quincy, we're digging into another one of those people episodes. We've covered a, a wide variety of people that have interest us and have been an influence in the Quincy area. And, and maybe that's even the more important point, Travis. And, and this one in particular, it's a name that we've known and we name we've heard of for all the years growing up and being in the area, but uh, maybe something we don't know a whole lot about, and maybe we don't know a whole lot about the person. And uh, Traps, I'll let you do the introducing because I, I think we're going to learn a lot about uh, one of those special people in the community. Well, we have no less of an authority on him tonight. We're more than happy to welcome Reg Ankrum. Reg, you are a authority, I would say, and I will say it in, with... Uh, because I know how humble you are, but I, I think it's it's truly noted. You've contributed more than 100 historical articles, columns, and essays throughout the area and beyond, magazines, newspapers, and your fascination lately, and when I say lately, probably what, the last 10, 12 years, has been Stephen A. Douglas. Reg, how, how did you get started going down the road? It seems like you took a left when a lot of history tends to take a right and goes to Lincoln. Why Douglas? Well, I uh, I got started believe it or not, at a doll auction in Makoka, Iowa. Uh, <laughs> a my, doll yep, auction. My wife, <laughs> Jane, say. collected dolls and still does. And after I retired from Ameren CIPS, the local utility, I uh, told Jane wherever she wanted to go in the Midwest, we would drive to get to uh, doll auctions. And one happened to be in Makoka. And, and at that estate sale, they were selling um, books of the uh, – of the deceased, and and one set was Carl Sandburg's Lincoln, the six books that Carl Sandburg wrote about uh, about Lincoln, and I didn't have any really reason to buy them, but I did, and I opened the cover of the first one, read the first page, and read the next six books, and immediately I was hooked on Abraham Lincoln, 
And I love Lincoln with a passion. He's still my passion. And if our nation has a civil saint, it is Abraham Lincoln. Well, I, I started writing a book I called Sacred Soil. On I just arbitrarily picked 50 people from across the middle of Illinois, from Vermilion County on the east side to Adams County on the west, and all the way that swat, all the way across Illinois and that swath of counties. And I ran across Stephen Douglas. And when I started writing about Douglas for that particular book, and I hope someday to get back to it, um, it, it, it amazed me that it seemed Douglas was eminently more powerful than Abraham Lincoln in the mid-19th century. And I began to wonder, where's the stuff on Douglas? Uh, I met a friend, met a guy named James Cornelius, a PhD who had been the curator of the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum in Springfield. And he confirmed with a study he did that there were 18,000 books that had been written about Abraham Lincoln. And, wow. and there were only a handful about Stephen A. Douglas. And Douglas was so much more powerful through the mid-19th century, the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, well, early 60s, than Lincoln. And in fact, Douglas so respected Lincoln that he was able to control Lincoln's career. Douglas actually, as a 23-year-old, founded the Democratic Party in Illinois and got himself conveniently elected chairman of the Central Committee, um, a post that allowed him to control politics in Illinois for 26 years. And Lincoln pursued Link, uh, Douglas in politics for 26 years and only beat him in the election of 1860 for the presidency. Uh, Douglas, two, these two Illinoisans, both immigrants to Illinois, Lincoln from Kentucky, Douglas from Vermont and New York, uh, had any number of contests in Illinois uh, before 1860. Douglas won all of them, literally greatly respected Lincoln, um, and because of that respect, made sure that Lincoln had the worst possible chance in politics until 1860, when he, he just couldn't control what was happening in the nation by that time. Your fascination, it seems like it leapt to the fact that let's figure out why that the documentation of Douglas hasn't been as robust when obviously after reading your books and you've had two of three completed and i believe the first one is the political apprenticeship 1833 to 1843 the second is the early years in congress 1844 to 1850 and your third is ongoing i believe the working title is stephen a douglas and union is that is that correct yes you you've obviously found a treasure trove of information and i was i think like most people we get stuck in in seeing Douglas as a footnote in history mm -hmm. because of the relationship, especially in Quincy with our proximity to the well-known Lincoln Douglas debates. But I didn't realize how deep a connection Douglas had to the area, Quincy and beyond within, you know, to Jacksonville. And I was shocked to see that he lived in Quincy for what, six, seven years. Yes. Yeah. Well, before I'm getting a little ahead of where I want to be, but Let's talk a little bit about how, how Quincy came on the map. When Douglas set up, he headed to Jacksonville because of his love of President Andrew uh, Jackson at the mm -hmm. time. And the whole uh, fact that Jacksonville was named after <laughs> President Jackson was appealing to a young Douglas who moved out you know, to become the Western man. Give us a little idea of we all kind of know what Jacksonville and Quincy looks like today in size and importance. But what was the relationship back then when Douglas found his way into Jacksonville, to your understanding, Reg? Jacksonville really was an unusual community from a number of perspectives. Uh, the first one was it was not on a river. And in that day and age, communities, new communities were starting along 
uh, riverbanks and waterways because that was the way to markets and the way to, um, you know, for growth and so on. I mean, Quincy was on the Mississippi River uh, conveniently between uh, the northern part of Illinois, you know, uh, Davenport, Bettendorf, and the Iowa, northern northern Iowa, where there were markets, and St. Louis, which really controlled the Mississippi and, and really still does. Jacksonville was very unusual because it was not on a river, uh, but it was a place where um, uh, that the, the the man who wrote the book that Douglas read on his way out here said was probably one of the best communities he had seen on the continent, the North, North American continent, a guy named James Stewart. We in Quincy have a guy named James Stewart, but it was not that James Stewart, uh, the right. Den of Thieves writer and so on. But anyway, James Stewart of Scotland was here for three years and of all the places he had seen, his book said Jacksonville was the most erudite community he had seen. It had a woman's a female academy at the time when women were really had no rights. Uh, they were training women in Jacksonville for more professional and, and um, intellectual pursuits. And it had a thriving um, business community. Uh, what it had that was most important was a small college, Illinois College, the first college in Illinois. Uh, the first president was Edward Beecher, who was the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe and the the son of Henry Ward, uh, excuse me, Lyman Beecher, and it was the abolitionist college. And uh, so anyway, Douglas was not interested really in any of that. When he left New York in, in uh, June of 1833, he had no destination in mind, but on the river, he finds this book. He was reading this book by James Stewart, and he was just enthralled by the fact that some town had been named for his hero, Andrew Jackson. And he went out just to see meet the people. He just wanted to meet the people who had named their community for his hero, Andrew Jackson. And when he got there, uh, he found everything I had mentioned, but he also found uh, an interest that was latent among in Stephen Douglas's mind, and that was the, the area of politics. He finds that Henry Clay's nephew, Henry Clay was the great pacificator, you know, really responsible for the War of 1812, almost single-handedly started that war in 1812. And in 1820, helped to create the Missouri Compromise to end at least for a period the controversy of slavery, which has been attached to every issue that came before Congress from the Confederation Congress in the 1780s all the way to 1860 when the slavery issue finally created civil war. And so Douglas gets to Jacksonville, Illinois, where these abolitionists were running Illinois College and uh, had founded Illinois College, uh, he finds John Hardin, the nephew of Henry Clay, the most powerful Whig really in the state at the time. Uh, Lincoln was not really involved in politics to, to any extent, extent at that point. And so Douglas found the challenge that kept him in Jacksonville, and that was the nephew of Henry Clay and Whig politics that were growing in Jacksonville. Douglas's concern was that just two years earlier, Andrew Jackson had been elected by a 75% majority in Morgan County and Jacksonville being the county seat. And by the time Jack, uh, Douglas gets there in November of 1833, um, he finds that Doug, or Jackson's interests among Morgan Countyites had gone down and the, the latest election for local offices showed that the Democrats had lost as much as 20% of their vote. It was down to 55% when Douglas gets there in 1833. So he's great challenges. That's why he stayed there. So Douglas finds, finds an interest in politics in Jacksonville. 
he starts his his road, but he kind of had one central goal after kind of finding his way, it seems, and that was to be on the Illinois Supreme Court, not just to be on the Illinois Supreme Court, but to be the youngest on the Illinois Supreme Court. Is that a fair to say? Uh, it was. I, I'm i not sure that he was really uh, focused or had a goal for the Supreme Court. It just happened to work out that the Illinois Supreme Court fit Douglas's goals, which were to advance in politics. And by the time he reached the Supreme Court, in March of 1841, he had been the state's attorney. He actually wrote a bill that the legislature in Illinois passed that changed the way state's attorneys were appointed. And it's just happened that the legislature was democratically controlled. He got the bill passed to the Democratic legislature. It was vetoed by the governor. Douglas hops on a horse in Jacksonville and rides 85 miles south to Vandalia, gets the legislature to override that veto, and then gets himself, after the legislature passed over the veto, gets himself appointed state's attorney in Morgan County. The guy is 21 years old, kicks out of office wow. John J. Harden, the most powerful Whig in the state, and becomes state's attorney. And in that position, he starts controlling politics in Illinois. He, at that right after that, creates the Democratic Party. John Harden, there were, Morgan County was a large county, even larger than Sangamon County at the time. Harden controlled the Morgan County delegation in the legislature. There were six representatives in the House, and Harden was one of, one of five Whigs. There was only one Democratic legislator from the Morgan delegation. Douglas creates the Democratic Party, and within, at the next election, changes that makeup Five Democrats were elected, four of the Whigs were kicked out, and John Harden was the only Whig among the six who, who, was, who was a Whig among the, the five other Democrats. And Morgan County got the attention of Democrats from across the state, and they came to Douglas and asked how the heck he did that, and he pointed out that he had created this small party in Morgan County, and he then saw his opportunity to create a statewide Democratic Party, which he did. And from there, his, his career um, was always based on his focus, his attention, his love of the party, and his interest in making sure that there was a two-party system in the country. He believed greatly in this two-party system, that the best of, of, um, of, of the American intellect would rise to the top when you had interests competing in policies and economics and finance and so on and so forth. And so that's how Douglas really made his way to begin with. Um, he, he catapulted himself from, you know, state's attorney to legislator. He gets himself appointed by President Martin Van Buren to, uh, to become the registrar of the federal land office in Springfield. Uh, he becomes secretary of state for only three months, but just long enough, three months was long enough for him to help Joseph Smith the more of the Mormon church, the prophet, Change the name, change the place, Commerce City on the Mississippi, forty miles north of Quincy, to the city of Nauvoo. Uh, yeah, I want to. I want to circle back to that. I know you got so many great facts about Douglas, and I. I want to tack a little bit to put a little bit of a pin in what you're talking about. Is I believe it was in 1841 after being elected to the the Illinois Supreme Court as a he was a uh, associate justice, right? And that was the prompting factor for him to depart from Jacksonville and come to Quincy, correct? Because Quincy was the seat, is that right? Yeah, he, he had already, he had not gotten to Quincy. He actually, before he got to Quincy, was in Springfield. 
Uh, he gets there in, in March of 1837. Lincoln gets there in April of 37. And it's interesting how in all cases, his relationship with Lincoln, they were always very close together physically, um, from a political standpoint, and so on and so forth. Yes. Even romantically, it would seem. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right. They were both the uh, bows of Mary Todd. And uh, uh-huh. Douglas just happened to be engaged to Mary Todd before Lincoln was, interestingly. Isn't it shocking? Oh, wow, I had I no idea that. of the, the relationship before reading your first <laughs> book, chapter, Reg. It was, it was chapter wild. 11 wow. in my first book. And it's about It's a doozy. It's a <laughs> yeah. doozy. He saw his election on the Supreme Court as, as being a stepping stone into further politics, it seems. What was his impression? Did he give a lot of indication? Because you're, you're the great thing about your your reading your and reading your books and your writing style is you don't make a lot of assumptions. You don't add a lot of editorial. You really take the people's words through documented history yeah. and not just references. So you really feel like you're getting the information from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Right. And from that, what was Douglas's mindset of kind of leaving the beloved Jacksonville to and landing in Quincy. What what was his initial reaction to Quincy? Did he like it in Quincy? What was what, what was his feeling? I think it was clear that Douglas saw Quincy as another stepping stone. The point I was making in my little soliloquy or colloquy there was that <laughs> Douglas had stepping stones and he had this great vision to see two or three steps ahead. Here's how I could succeed to my next step if I can do this. Joseph Smith was a great case in point. Joseph Smith and 5,700 Mormons are expelled from Missouri in 1838 by the governor, Lilliburn Boggs. If they didn't leave, he threatened to kill them. It was an extermination order. And so Joseph Smith um, and the Mormons moved across the Mississippi from Missouri into Quincy, and Quincyans welcomed the, uh, the Mormons. And so Joseph Smith, once he gets here, he's the the governor of Missouri, sends an extradition order to the governor of Illinois, asking him to send Smith back to be tried for treason, which was a criminal offense, and Smith could be hung. Douglas is in Quincy at that time. He had been here like just two or three months when that case came in. Governor Ford, who happened to be from Quincy, by the way, Thomas Ford, sends the extradition order to, to Adams County to execute. And Douglas is the judge, and the case of of Joseph Smith and the extradition order comes before Judge Douglas. Douglas, by the way, at that point is 27 years old. He's the youngest judge and Supreme Court justice in Illinois history, a record that will never be beaten. Wow. Anyway, the case comes before Douglas, and he found for Smith on a technicality. The technicality was the order had been issued the year before, and um, the the Adams County Sheriff had tried to execute it, but couldn't find Smith. And so he, the sheriff signs the extradition order, sends it back to Springfield. And Judge Douglas ruled that the execution order had already been executed. Smith couldn't be found. But the fact was the order was no good. That was the technicality. So Smith now is freed by Judge Douglas, the 27-year-old circuit judge. And Smith then loves Douglas. He writes this little thing, which I love. He says, Judge Douglas is a master spirit in in our church, and his friends are our friends, and we will never forget what he did for us. And so Douglas then, understanding that, gets himself, got himself uh, nominated to Congress in 1843, thinking that he'd pick up those votes just north of of Adams County, 5,700 votes up there. 
and he believed that uh, Smith was beholden enough that he would swing the Mormon vote to Douglas. The interesting thing was that did not happen, and Douglas still won the election. Um, what, what happened was there was so much growth in Illinois because of immigration that there were two new congressional districts formed in the, the, the early 1840s, and the result was uh, Douglas's district was congr congressional district number five, and the line between five and six, new, the new district of six, was drawn between Adams and Hancock County, just north. And Hancock uh, County, Sanavu, as in the result was, Douglas didn't get that vote. Believe it or not, though, he did talk Smith and Hiram Smith, Douglas's or Joseph's brother, into supporting jo uh, Joseph Hogue, who was the Democratic candidate for Congress in the new 6th District. And Hogue wins his election, and Douglas has a Democratic mm. delegation going to Congress in 1843. Boy, I could tell you what, it sounds like Stephen is is quite the politician and, and he quite, quite the strategy person when it comes to trying to figure out what uh, what uh, stones to jump on to get to yeah. those next steps. And and I do want to answer that. You're exactly right, Chris. He had this tremendous vision. Uh, he was a bright young man. He went to Canandaigua Academy in New York and was thought to be the, the best orator that they'd ever had as a student. And all the speeches he made initially when he gets to Illinois were in behalf of Jackson. Jackson, John Quincy Adams got elected and Jackson, you know, and his, and his cronies were extremely upset because John Quincy Adams won only because Henry Clay, who was another candidate for the presidency, gave Adams all his electoral votes. And Adams then, because the electoral votes, there was no majority, it gets thrown into the House of Representatives where Clay gives his votes to Adams, who therefore wins the election as the president for the presidency, mm -hmm. beating the guy who won the most votes, uh, Andrew Jackson. And so Jackson then gets upset and he creates the new uh, Democratic-Republican Party. Was there tension between Qu Quincy and Jacksonville because of, of the... Uh or was it more just that's just the name of the town? There's not don't read into it yeah. too much, because that's got to be a little bit of a slap in the face for a, a firm Jacksonian to have to reside in a town that's you know namesake is John Quincy. Not Adams. really. Uh, there was tension, and that was when Quincy was named. Believe it or not, the suggestion for the name of Quincy was given to it, given to John Wood and Willard Keys, who founded the town and who were with a state commission. There was a state commission that picked county seats at that time. And this commission was made up of Morgan County delegates. And the leader was a guy named Seymour Kellogg, who hated Andrew Jackson and hated the idea that his town was named for Andrew Jackson. He was a Whig of, of, of Whigs. So he's leading this delegation, which is looking to this spot in Quincy and John Wood and Willard Keyes got them by a crazy situation, which I won't go into, but got them to agree that Quincy would be the county seat. It had no name at that time. But Kellogg said he was so aggravated that his town was named Jacksonville after Andrew Jackson. He suggested to Wood and Keyes they name this place after John Quincy Adams. And that's how they got the oh, name wow. of Quincy. Wow. That's fantastic. And, and they named the county. Adams County, right. and there was a creek they called John's Creek. And so there was John Creek in Quincy, Illinois, in Adams, Illinois. They, they kind of put a hat on a hat there. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. The tension was really coming from a guy from Morgan County. Uh, Wooden 
had really no, they didn't really care what the town was named, but they agreed. Uh, they were both Whigs, but they agreed. This was a reason to call this place Quincy, Illinois. Wow. That's incredible. And and that's what's so great, Reg. I don't know how many times in research we've done for other other episodes where I'm always running across one of your penned articles. You just recently had an amazing story on Woodland Cemetery in the local local news media, which is wonderful. Um, but I we're jumping, we're going so fast and furious. There's some things you you've lived and breathed this stuff for so long, Reg, on your research. But there's a few points I want to drop in just to help some who may not be as as in depth as with ante- the antebellum time period as you are in the area. But at the time, Vandalia was the capital of Illinois and not Springfield, which would happen later. And then I just want to put an exclamation point on what you were talking about previously with Joseph Smith. It sounded in reading your first book that the gallows were ready for Smith here in town. Like this almost became the end of the road for Joseph Smith. Could of Nauvoo even happened? If Douglas wouldn't have spared him or found the exception in the case, I know I'm 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 inviting a lot of speculation on your part, but I don't think enough can be made on that point of, of what kind of a difference potentially to history a butterfly effect was made by that that ruling. Well, uh, as you say, it's it's hard to say what might have happened. I mean, what I've learned in history is life is so complicated that you can't really say. Um, you know, I, I could tell you, for example, that. Abraham Lincoln said the Kansas-Nebraska Act was the cause of the Civil War. Right. You know, I could tell you that it was two Quincyans who sponsored the bill that created Kansas-Nebraska. Douglas, who wrote it and got it passed in the Senate, and William Richardson, who was Douglas's Democratic crony, who lived at Fourth and Broadway in Quincy, and he was a congressman. He was in the House of Representatives, where he had a much tougher time than Douglas getting it passed. But if Lincoln is correct, and again, speculation, if Lincoln is correct, it would mean that two Quincyans were responsible for the Civil War. Can I really say that? But so so it's hard to say, you know, but I can tell you, Douglas was was very helpful to Smith when Smith was in trouble. And and he was seemed to be in trouble a lot. Joseph Smith, you know, (laughs) he didn't make a lot of friends. Well, they were kicked out of New York. They were kicked out of Ohio. They moved from Ohio to Missouri. They get kicked out of Missouri. And ultimately, in 1846, they were, in a sense, kicked out of Illinois. So it was not an easy route for Joseph Smith. But Douglas appreciated greatly Smith and his leadership of this large and growing church. And Douglas's position only changed when Brigham Young took over after the uh, the church had moved to Utah. Right. And Douglas, and and Young really was creating more of a theocracy than any place they had been before. That's why they were kicked out of all these places, because this Smith-led church uh, was becoming more powerful politically because of their numbers right. than in, any other group in the places they were. And that's why they were run out of this place and that place and finally run out of Illinois. So and Douglas became aggravated and perturbed at uh, at Brigham Young because Douglas said he was not an American. He was creating alliances with the enemies of America, you know, creating alliances with Indians, setting up a a, a country. Um, they would never swear an oath to America. They wouldn't pledge an allegiance to the to the United States. And so Douglas became very upset about that and and worked against you know the Mormons from that point on. 
I want to hit up on something that you just said. I think it's it's interesting. I've always been curious about it. Maybe you can help answer the question. It's today's world, we we don't have very many political figures that are at the national spotlight from Quincy. But when you're looking 1840s, 50s, 60s time frame, there is a lot of influence coming from the Quincy area. Why is that? Well, a lot of it had to do with the nature of Quincy itself and being on the river. Um, and being at the right place at the right time. I mean, the early 40s through the 50s and, and even the 60s, you know, in, in 1862, the Homestead Act was passed and, and people were granted acreage, 160 acres, mm-hmm. settle in the West. Quincy was really the launch point for that for a lot of that movement. If you look at the map of Illinois in the very West side, it's got this big bulge on the West side. Quincy's the navel of that belly there. Yeah. And so, you know, people who were immigrating to the West and that had started by the, about the, you know, Douglas was an immigrant, Lincoln was an immigrant uh, and they came to Illinois and, and a lot, Illinois was growing leaps and bounds. They could come to Illinois with no provisions, no supplies, get to Quincy. And in Quincy, they found places like the Comstock cat, what today is Comstock castle stove. They could buy a small stove. They could buy wagons from Naphide. Uh, they could buy other materials and, and equipment, furniture from the Quincy manufacturers and so on and so forth, equip themselves and then head on west from Quincy. And, and Douglas, of course, um, Travis, I, I appreciate you reading my books. Douglas in the second book is where, um, is where he started with his great idea, and he won election from Quincy with this idea that he was going to build an, what he called an ocean-bound republic meaning a country that was would extend from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. Quincy was on the edge of really a country that was, that was developed only up to the west side of Illinois. There were three states along the Mississippi, Missouri, then just below that, Arkansas, and then Louisiana. Believe it or not, everything else west of the Mississippi was unsettled. And Douglas's goal was to build this ocean-bound republic. And he believed Jackson's mantra that the expansion of the nation is the expansion of liberty. And Douglas from Quincy uh, and, and people who elected him loved the idea was the guy who built the nation. And, and that's why I say Stephen A. Douglas and Union uh, is the working title of my third book, because it'll be about Douglas's efforts. You know, his great achievement was the Compromise of 1850, where he organized the New Mexican session, 600, almost 600,000 square miles of brand new territory in which Douglas, uh, Douglas was the leading man to get that job done, to bring it all, all into the United States. It was a huge effort to organize territory. The key thing, Travis, in my second book is I, I made a word count of the, of the word slavery. Right. Second book. Uh, because we were built, we, we were created a slave nation. And believe it or not, something else I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably didn't know, Illinois was actually a slave state when it came in 1818. It had a free constitution, but that constitution uh, grandfathered slavery in, in along the, uh, uh, the west side of Illinois, in southern Illinois, where slaves were used to mine salt, and in northern Illinois, where slaves were working lead mines and so on and so forth. Illinois was a slave state. Slavery was at the heart of everything Congress was doing, and that was the huge controversy from the beginning to the time of Abraham Lincoln. 
it was certainly the, the, the main word in the seven great debates in 1858 between Lincoln and Douglas. Slavery, slavery, slavery. Thomas Hart Benton, and I, I use these little epithets throughout my book, Thomas Hart Benton and other congressmen kept saying from, from, from the North, every bill that comes before Congress in some way has slavery attached to it. And it was true. And that was the great difficulty, the great slap that Douglas faced every time he tried to organize a territory. The South was so jealous of its institution. It was always trying to understand the implication of bringing a state in, a new state in. If it comes in free, mm. the South loses two votes in the Senate, loses two senators, and certainly loses a representative. And the result was Douglas had slavery slapping him in the face no matter what he did. Boy, I mean, he it was a pressure cooker that it feels like it feels like Douglas couldn't escape. He tried to, he tried to kind of be agnostic towards the issue and really focus on the letter of the law most of the time to the point where it's unavoidable to address it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing that you you perceive that because that's exactly where Douglas came from. You know, Lincoln in 1858 said about Douglas, the judge just won't say slavery is wrong. And, and he didn't, because in order to achieve compromises to organize these territories, he had to have votes from both the North and the South. And he couldn't upset either of them, just as Lincoln, when he became when, before he became president, ran and could not upset the North or the South. You know, Lincoln said, you know, uh, he, he felt sorry for the South. He said, I don't know what I would do in their situation. I mean, Lincoln was in the same boat by the time he ran for the presidency in 1860. So Douglas was faced with this huge issue. Uh, how did he feel about it? I happen to know. And I don't like I appreciate your saying I don't speculate in my book because I don't. I try to have people use their own words to say where they were coming from. And I don't carry water for Douglas, but I, I find him a, a very consistent and I think a reasonable guy from, for what he was trying to do in saying that uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't say slavery was right or wrong. I have found documents in which he says slavery was wrong. And, and in, in a weak moment in 1850, when he was trying to pass the Compromise of 1850, uh, the South was all over him. Jefferson Davis was just uh, the senator from Mississippi who became the president of the Confederacy when the South pulls out, said to Douglas, you're not doing enough to protect our institution. Uh, and Douglas said, I think it's a weak moment because it revealed who he was. He said, you men of the South, this was a speech he made on the Senate floor in March of 1850, you men of the South need to know that from this great mass of land out West, there will be 17 new states. I mean, Douglas was like Thomas Jefferson, who actually in the Northwest Territory in the, in the 1700s, the 1780s, said there would be five new states. Actually, he said six and five came out of the Northwest Territory. Well, Douglas saw 17 coming this, from this big place he was trying to pull in. Anyway, he said, you men of the South need to understand there will be 17 new states. And he said, everyone will be free. And, you know, the interesting thing was Douglas, <laughs> who's accused by Abraham Lincoln in 1858 of not, well, of repealing the Missouri Compromise. And that was the line uh, on the parallel 3630 going from the west edge of the Louisiana Purchase, which was the Nebraska line and Missouri was part of it. Um, Douglas wanted to extend that line to the Pacific Ocean 
So he could use what the law was to bring states in, and the South had the opportunity to be free, and the North would be free. But of all the times he tried to do that, he started in 1844. The first bill he introduced was Nebraska. When he was a young congressman from Quincy, Illinois, his first bill was to introduce Nebraska. He couldn't get it done. He, he, year after year, he did that until 1854, when he finally got it done by repealing the Missouri Compromise, because the Whigs would never accept the extension of that line. And Douglas finally figured out two things. Number one, he said, you know, they're not going to do it, so I've got to find some other way to do it. And uh, he, he figured out that, in fact, the extension of that line was unconstitutional. What he determined was that con the Constitution, nowhere in the Constitution was Congress given the authority to tell a state what institutions it would have. And when it drew that line, it said some states can have slavery and some states can't. Well, Douglas found that that was unconstitutional, which did, in a sense, help him win the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, replace it with popular sovereignty. Now, the importance of that is the Constitution did have what was called an equal footing provision. And what that meant was any new state, any new state had a right to the domestic institutions of any of the 13 original states. They had a right to the equality of institutions of any of the original states. And so to be equal, the Constitution had to provide them the ability to have slavery. And believe it or not, when the Declaration of Independence was finished in 1787, all 13 colonies, all of them had slavery. By the time the Constitution was written, Six, or one got rid of slavery, that was Massachusetts. And so uh, Illinois, that's how Illinois tried to come in as a slave state, because they had the right under the equal footing provision to have the institution of slavery. Now, what Douglas believed, and I'll, I'll finish this comment here, Douglas believed that no man who, and women were not allowed to vote, so when he said no man, he was talking about what the law provided, no man who had the opportunity to uh, to ratify a constitution, would ever ratify a constitution with slavery in it. And he was right about that. The fact was, he said 17 would come in free. One did not. That was Utah. Uh, one did not, but the others did. He was right about that. He was right for the wrong reason. And I'll tell you what that reason was, if you want to know. But the fact was, Douglas knew that people would not vote to have a slave state if they had the right, if they had the ability to elect it. California was the first state to have that ability. It came in with a free constitution. A few years later, Oregon came in. They created a constitution and prohibited slavery. It didn't take an act of Congress, and Douglas had concluded anyway that Congress had no authority constitutionally to, to invalidate slavery. He knew the people would do it themselves. It, it seems every everywhere he turned in... Uh to tie things to Quincy a little bit, specifically in 1842, Dr. Richard Eels, he was aiding a fugitive slave. Obviously, Eels was heavy in the abolitionist movement here in the Underground Railroad. And mm -hmm. it was Douglas who was the judge when Dr. Eels was taken to court, essentially, for fugiting the, the escaped slave from Missouri named Charlie. 
And it's wild to think that, you know, you see, hear all these bits and pieces about Quincy history and Douglas seems to tie into a lot of them in unexpected ways. I know I wasn't familiar with the with Douglas being the judge that uh, I think they, they found Eels guilty and uh, what they find him $400 if memory serves. Yeah. Yeah. And there was an ongoing battle up to, I believe, through the Illinois Supreme Court, uh, possibly a little bit beyond the fact. But. What I find interesting, and I think what Wild Quincy has, tries to do is to kind of compare and contrast like how history falls on today. Like, I'm always curious, like what would what would the life of Stephen Douglas look like today? What were some hot spots in Quincy where he would frequent? I mean, where did he live in town? Give us a little lay of the land on on what a day for Stephen Douglas in Quincy might look like. Well, of course. At the time, Adams County was one of, I think it was like uh, eight or nine counties in his judicial district. So he was gone a, a lot. Uh, you know, the circuit would operate in, from the spring to the fall. And Adams County was one of only eight or nine counties in which he operated as the circuit judge. And it was in, uh, it was in 1842 that Charlie escaped. And Dr. Eels, who lived on Jersey Street, and Douglas lived just a block or two away from him. Douglas lived at what today is Third and York. And in fact, this county courthouse was on the square. It was the second courthouse. It was on the east side of the square, what today is Fifth Street, about the middle of the block. And Douglas would actually walk from his house at Third and New York. He rented a place and he would walk through uh, Eels' backyard to get to the courthouse, to get to the square. You know, Eels is. Uh, Eels' house was just behind what today is Main Street between 4th and 5th. And Douglas was just a block beyond Eels' house. So they were certainly familiar and acquainted with one another. But what happened was in Quincy, um, Eels harbored this fugitive slave. And what it was, it was nothing that Douglas was interested in from a per personal standpoint. But what that was, was a violation of law. The the state of Illinois had a state uh, law, and there was the United States law by, by the Constitution that anyone who was able to capture a fugitive slave was required by law and by the Constitution federally to return the slave to its owner. The slave was property, and you couldn't take another man's property without, without his permission. Although we took property, we took human beings without their consent You know, at the time. So anyway, Douglas, Douglas found him guilty only because it was clearly a violation of law. And if Douglas was nothing else, he was a great lawyer and a great constitutionalist. Nobody knew better than Douglas, I believe, the Constitution. When he gets to Congress from Quincy, all heck was breaking out in the House. It was absolutely disorganized. that They couldn't organize, and it went on and on. And finally, the guy who finally gets elected House Speaker by his peers appoints Douglas immediately. You got to find us a solution. Within a couple of weeks, Douglas did that. And to me, it predicted who Douglas would be politically for the rest of his life, as he was as a judge here in Quincy, a, a, a purist when it came to the Constitution. What Douglas ruled in a case in which 22 congressmen were elected illegally under a federal law. Douglas found the law unconstitutional. And so he was able to solve the problem. The, the, all heck was breaking loose because these guys couldn't get seated. The credentials committee wouldn't approve them because 
they were elected statewide instead of by districts as a new law had required two years earlier. And so Douglas simply as, as the judge who knew the constitution, the reason this, the speaker of the house appointed him, Douglas knew the constitution and says, nowhere in the constitution is the Congress authorized to tell a state how to elect its own representatives. The 22 men get seated, the house takes off. Douglas makes, has, has his mark immediately, becomes a powerful uh, representative almost overnight appointed to the as chairman of the House Committee on the Territories, the most powerful committee in the in the House. And so you can see, um, and, and that's how Douglas judged the law. Interestingly, Travis, that here, uh, he found a guy named Calvin Warren, for whom Warren County is named, um, guilty of, uh, of committing fraud. And Douglas, a circuit court at that time, uh, and Douglas wrote the bill to do it, served on the Supreme Court at the same time from the same district. So Douglas right. was not only a judge in the Fifth Judicial District, he was the, the Supreme Court Justice from the Fifth Judicial District. He found, as a circuit judge, he found Calvin Warren guilty and Warren appealed. There was no appellate court. It goes directly to the Supreme Court then. Warren appealed and Douglas overturned his own decision. I mean, Douglas was so focused on the the law and what was right and wrong that he overturned his own decision. As far as I know, he's the only Supreme court justice who ever did that. And the reason was he thought that Warren had come in with some additional information at the end of the trial, the trial was over, but ju the judge hadn't handed out his decision. And Douglas said, I should have allowed that material to come in. And so he, he remanded the case back to his own court in, in, um, in Adams County. Chris, you alluded in the past about Quincy producing such you know powerful figures. Douglas went round with quite a few of those. Um, one being Orville Orville Hickman here in town. Orville Browning, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. One being Orville Browning, yeah. Orville Hickman Browning. Now, what was what was the relationship between Browning and Douglas at the time? I don't think either cared for the other. Browning Browning was uh, really a dandy. I would say he was fully educated. He uh, got his law degree from Transylvania University in Kentucky, moved here because, um, you know, land sales were booming on the west side of the state because there's this huge military tract. Quincy is right in the middle of it. And lawyers were here to help solve, um, help create proper titles and deeds. In Kentucky, Abraham Lincoln's dad lost two properties, two farms, because meets and bounds didn't meet in, in the titles. And of those properties. So Lincoln was actually driven off two properties because his dad's property uh, was illegal or, you know, not to, not the titles weren't prepared correctly. Deeds weren't. Anyway, so these trained lawyers came to places like Quincy, which was, which had a federal land office and they had, they made a lot of money here. And that was Browning's position. Browning was a dandy. He, he was sort of like, um, you know, if you didn't graduate from a law school, you know, you're really not a lawyer. He, he was a friend of Abraham Lincoln, but he was highly jealous of Lincoln because Lincoln didn't even graduate from school, period. He only had nine months of, of formal education in, in his whole life. He was self-trained, self-taught. And the same was really true of Douglas, although Douglas, you know, really had two, two and a half years at an academy, which was similar to a college, uh, and wanted to practice law. He didn't get a law degree either. He was simply, simply came to Illinois first because Illinois did not require that he have any 
any kind of formal training for the law. All you had to do was read law and then get the testimony of two lawyers and then pass a test, you know, talk to two Supreme Court justices and they would certify you for the bar. And that's how Douglas became a lawyer. So, wow. so Browning didn't like, I mean, he, it's not, he didn't like them, but he sort of looked down on men who were not, you know, formally trained as lawyers. Um, and, and in the, in the time of the great debate here in Quincy, October 13th, it was a, a Wednesday in 1858 when Lincoln and Douglas, Douglas from Quincy, Lincoln, who had friends here, uh, Orville Hickman Browning on what historians call this the greatest day in Quincy history on October 13th, 1858, this great debate here, Browning found a reason to be out of town. And <laughs> you know, he left town. He had the greatest day of Quincy and he knew the importance of this debate. This was the sixth of the seven debates over a month and a half. And he knew how much attention it was getting nationally. That's how Lincoln got propelled the presidency in 1860. And Browning chooses to be in the courthouse in Carthage instead of, mm-hmm. instead of Quincy, Illinois. So wow. that's a Browning. Browning, I, I don't think Douglas really never, he didn't carry grudges. He was a very gracious person. I mean, it shows up in, in the Congressional Globe, the reports of, of the testimonies and, and uh, the hearings and, and speeches in Congress. And Douglas was always very gracious and gregarious. Um, you know, he could he could battle with you to the end on on a controversial question, and usually prevailed in those questions. But he never held grudges. Now, I, unfortunately, we're going to put a little bit of a bow on the topic, but I will encourage everyone to pursue your readings in your books Thank because there's we're only scratching the surface. Unfortunately, yeah. we don't have so much time. But I think what I took away from you know my interpretation, I guess is I don't think we didn't spend a lot of time talking about Lincoln. Obviously the two are intertwined in history. There's no no doubt that that information's in a lot of places and you cover it very well also. But those two seem to sharpen each other. And I don't think either one of them well I, honestly Douglas probably would have been fine, but I don't think if Douglas wasn't that little gnat in the corner of of Lincoln's peripheral or maybe just under it on the the height side, could Lincoln have risen to where he got to in life without figures like Stephen Douglas and those endless bouts of tangling on, on topics political and otherwise. Yeah. Well, uh, you're right. Uh, Lincoln himself said that had it not been for Douglas, he wouldn't have risen. Um, You know, he was, he was a, he was a good lawyer. Uh, He practiced law for, I don't know, 18 years or so. Well, when he knew, you know, at the time he knew Douglas and so on and, and well, actually pursued Douglas for 26 years. So for, it was 26 years. But Lincoln was not well known. Douglas made his, you know, was building a reputation from the time he got to Congress. You know, here's a here's a five foot four inch guy from Quincy, Illinois, who passes the Compromise of 1850 when Henry Clay, who spent almost a year trying, could not get it done. Clay leaves after that period of time. He was exhausted. He was about 75 years old. So he was my age and just exhausted by trying to get it done. He left, resigned Congress, went to went to the beaches of Newport, Rhode Island, and, and recovered there. And in six weeks, Douglas passed what Clay couldn't. And the president, Millard Fillmore, signed the eight bills in the Missouri Compromise that Douglas passed. Douglas had a national reputation. And Lincoln knew, and the reason it was Lincoln who made the suggestion, really sort of the demand, that Douglas debate him because he knew that Douglas was being covered in Illinois and would be covered during that campaign. And if he could take advantage of that discussion, um, it, it was all the better for him. 
And, and, and Lincoln said that was the reason he sought to debate Stephen A. Douglas. He could not do it by himself. And hmm. Douglas could. And Douglas did. Uh, he didn't do it in 1858. Douglas wins the election. Uh, but Lincoln became a national, no, nationally known figure because of his moderation on slavery. He talked about being anti-slavery, but at the same time, he wasn't. He, he said, "You know, it's a constitutional issue, and the Constitution provides slavery if if states want it." Douglas had been saying that forever, but Lincoln would be able to criticize Douglas on the basis that Douglas had proposed popular sovereignty, which would allow people. Uh, to, to to choose slavery and and Douglas was or Lincoln was sort of um, I'm going to say uh, uh, ambiguous about the way he talked about that. It made it sound as though he was against slavery, but he was not against allowing people to have it. Well, that's exactly where Douglas had come from for years. But Lincoln was bright enough to know that he could use that language and use Douglas to advance his own career, and he did. Well. Reg, I mean, we can't thank you enough for sharing. Like, again, we're not even doing justice to everything that Douglas has on Quincy and the shaping, but we only have so much time, unfortunately. But we encourage everyone check out your check out your books. Uh, StephenADouglas.com. No periods is your your website. And obviously the local Quincy Museum history or the Quincy History Shop, I believe, stocks books. And you can also find them on the most places you can find books, which I would highly encourage people. Reg, thank you so much for coming on and sharing just a small insight into the man that that really shaped a lot of the country that ran right through Quincy, Illinois. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Travis, appreciate being with you. And hopefully when my third book is done, I'll have another opportunity. I, I've, this is a highly researched book, and it will change history. I've learned a lot in uh, Douglas papers. I think I'm the first guy to dig deeply through them uh, because people just ignore Douglas. And if they didn't, they would find what I'm finding, which is incredibly uh, fascinating and history shaping. Well, we can't wait to see it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, good luck with everything, Reg, and thanks again. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot, guys. Good to be with you. You too. And that is a look at one of our people, and that is Stephen Douglas. We'll be back with more of Wild Quincy after this. Apologize to everyone because that's gonna be you're gonna be humming that <laughs> for the next three I totally, weeks. Totally, I totally got found that, and I found another one that is not like that. Um, just recently, I was like, "Oh, these are good," and I didn't think about it. And now listening to it again, I'm like, "That what did you say? It's living rent living, free. For living the next your week. brain rents free for weeks." Yeah, <laughs> I'm a little surprised. I mean, Mentos had that huge ad campaign. When was what was the timestamp on that, Chris? Uh, 90s, 90s is the best I can do for you. Yeah, I heard. I have never once thought about Mentos until the whole dropping it into a diet coke thing, and the you know, and it survived. Mentos, who knew? Staying power. They don't do advertising anymore. Nothing. Really, do I have they? heard nothing. 
Yeah, like they, made they used it. to be big. Remember, like the '90s, that commercial, and there was a couple others that they did. It was like nonstop with that song. That was enough. I think they they played their hand early, and it just kept keeping on. And it worked. Yeah. it evidently Kudos. worked. So you brought it up, and I gotta I gotta bring it up a little bit. The the exploding diet yeah, coke. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I had to look into this, and and of course our favorite group, MythBusters, they did some did some myth busting on on this. Uh, exploding thing and so it really comes down to and i'm not going to get scientific because i probably can't pronounce the stuff but potassium benzene i guess it's benzoates benzite Benzite, something like that yeah something like that uh aspartame which is the kind of the sugar substitute in diet coke and diet pepsi for that matter and then co2 are kind of the combination so but what happens is when you put one of those mentos the the connection is a gelatin and gum arabic okay? okay Those are the two things in Mentos. Now, here's the crazy part, is that that is a common mixture of ingredients for other types of candy. Really? Yes. However, Mythbusters found out that you can put those other types of candy in a Diet Coke and it doesn't have the reaction that a Mentos has. Crazy thing and reason why is because of the way it is designed, because it's in a ball like it is, and it's got these little bitty bubbles in it. It makes it to where the the uh, the CO two can attach to the to the thing quicker, and it creates what they call a uh, what was it? Uh, it creates a nucleaction site. So it's actually it's so quick that it, that's where it explodes. At. Wow. Because there's so many places for the CO2. Can you imagine the poor son of a gun who was the first one to find that out? The first one. (laughs) You know it was an accident. Like, But what would they even have been doing? Yeah. I don't know. know. If you know, let us know. Was it in their stomach? Oh, God. What happens if that happens? I don't know. Is it possible? I don't know. I think it is. I think people have tried it. I think there's YouTube videos. Put a pin in that. We're going to look at that on our Patreon episode. (laughs) We need to. Put that down. I will. I will. Yeah, Stop, uh, we got a we got a deep dive on 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 Mentos and Diet Coke uh, for Patreon, so make sure to check that out. Uh, other thing we got to check out is uh, the Golden Pipes. Are you ready for this, Travis? Bring it on! And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. All right, so we go to the wit and wisdom from our forefathers and foremothers of Adams County from the Folklore from Adams County, Illinois book written by none other than Harry Middleton Hyatt. Gotta love Harry. Harry did a lot of work for us in the 1930s to make our 2020s entertainable. Thank you, Mr. Hyatt. Yes, Dr. Hyatt? Uh, so we turned. Dr. Hyatt or Mr. Hyatt? I-, I think it was probably Dr. Hyatt. Well, you know what? He's it. an honorary doctor in Wild Quincy. He, we'll we'll give him it either way. Definitely. Uh, so we turn to uh, the section on journeys. This uh, s- selection coming from Jenny Grampke. And uh, we'll have another one, by the way. We gotta, we're running out of a selection. So we'll have a, a, another post that you can make some number choices for us coming up. But uh, Jenny's going to give us the selection from the journeys area. Are you ready for this one, Travis? Yeah, it's always a good one. Let's see what we got. 8362 is the number. And the subject is this. Start a journey on Friday and you will never return. Words of wisdom from Adams County. Well, I guess depending on where you're going, that could be a good or bad thing, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's just like straight out like, all right, well, don't leave on Friday. You're never coming back. Man. He never came back. Weird wisdom. Hopefully you can pull something out of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thanks to our forefathers and foremothers for that. Uh, Travis, before we wrap up, we got one last piece of the puzzle we got to take care of. Oh, yeah. 
Question of the day. So here's the question. Get you a little recap real quick. The man-made caves that are located near Gardner Denver Expressway, they've been around for years. They've been continuously mined all those years. The question's this. How far do they go back? Your choices are this. 8th Street, 12th Street, 18th Street, or 24th Street. Travis, what is your thoughts? Uh, I know it's a ways. Um, I'm just going to say 24th. I don't know why. Final answer? Yep. That, sir, would be correct. Oh, you got it man. right. See, whenever I have no clue, I do better because I don't <laughs> mess with my head thinking about it. Yeah, yeah uh, they go all the way back to 18th and then uh, actually all the way back to Sheridan Swim Club. Boy, that's crazy to think about, yes. isn't it? That and is they're a- continuously being mined today. Man. Yes. The reason why we bring this up is because our next episode is going to be about the underground in Quincy. And no, we're not talking about the shady, uh, shady side. We're talking about literally under the dirt and under the streets of Quincy. We're going to talk about caves. We're going to talk about... Subterranean exploration of Quincy. That's what we're talking about. Prohibition. We're going to talk caves. We're talking about alcohol. We're going to talk about everything under under the ground. (laughs) You got it. We're going to dig up some good content, Chris. Yeah, so we're going to give you details on even those underground caves that we're talking about and uh, give you the insight and goop. And Travis, by the way, I don't know if I told you this. Maybe I have, but uh, we actually have an invite to go into the underground caves, too. Oh, buddy. Let's yes. uh, let's, take, let's check that out. That's cool. Yeah, we're going to do that. So we'll have that coming up for you in two weeks. Patreon members, you'll get your uh, episode coming up next week, so make sure to check that out. But Travis... Before we take off, are we missing anything? Feel free to give us a holler at wildquincy at gmail.com or at 612-666-9453. You can call us or text us. We always love hearing what y'all have to say. This is a two-way street, and we are grateful to meet you in the median. Absolutely. Well, for Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters, and you've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.